Welcome to the Hope Talks podcast with Grayson Willis and Pastor Margaret Michael, where you'll hear inspiring stories that are filled with hope and good news in Jesus Christ. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. You can also listen to episodes on our church YouTube channel. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to today's broadcast of Hope Talks. I'm Grayson Willis. And I'm Pastor Margaret Michael. Thanks for tuning in. And today we're joined via the phone by Dr. Phil Fuller, who is the district superintendent for the Virginia District Church of the Nazarene. Dr. Phil, how are you doing today? It's good to have you. Oh, I'm doing really well today. And uh, it's great to talk with you, Grayson and Margaret. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity to be with you. Dr. Phil is here to share his testimony with us today. Yeah, before we get into all of his testimony, I have a really easy question for you, Dr. Phil. Okay. What kind of ice cream do you like? Oh, my goodness. I like all kinds of ice cream, but if I had a favorite, it is Jamocha Almond Fudge. Ooh. How about that one? That sounds really good. So where do you come up with that ice cream? Well, um, it used to be like Baskin Robbins or a similar kind of place had it. I don't know that you can always find it, but it's uh, coffee ice cream with a little bit of almond, a little bit of chocolate. Mm. You know, it probably will be in heaven, too. Yes. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) That sounds wonderful. It sounds like something I would really like. um, It has coffee in it. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say you had Pastor Margaret at coffee. (laughs) (laughs) And um, Grayson won't be partaking in that. Yeah. Because Grayson has a certain kind of ice cream he likes. Well, okay. I like vanilla, but I mean, fudge does chocolate. I mean, that might would be at least willing to try it and see what uh, I thought of it. Dr. Phil, just start out telling us about where you're from and about how you grew up. Oh, that's great. That could be a really long conversation <laughs> if we wanted it to be because I, I have a really, I mean, I'm not bragging on myself when I say this, but my parents and their life, and I just wound up with a really wonderful, neat kind of childhood. Um, my dad was a pastor. Uh, he was pastoring in the northern part of Alabama. My mom and dad are both from Alabama. And I was born in the, in the city of Gadsden, Alabama, which is about 60 miles east of Birmingham. And uh, we lived there till I was about three. Then we wound up uh, moving to Panama City, Florida, where my dad continued pastoring. And then when I was about five or six years old, my parents accepted a call to be missionaries. And so we moved our family. So my mom and dad and me and my young brother, we moved from Panama City, Florida to Florence, Italy, where we lived for two years. And then we moved to Rome, Italy, where I lived for eight years and went through uh, grade 10 of high school living in Italy. And so I had a lot of really wonderful experiences. Just think of all the different cultures Mm. From Alabama to Florida to Florence, the city of the Renaissance, and Rome, called the Eternal City. And really, in many ways, the city of Rome shaped me and made me. Uh, I find a lot of uh, a lot of the ways of the Roman people has gotten inside of me. Mm. And so I'm kind of shaped and made that way. Yeah. Then after that, I, we wound up moving to Montreal, Canada. We lived there for a while. I finished high school in Montreal. I went to university in Illinois. I went to seminary in Missouri, and then I pastored in Ohio, and then pastored in Virginia, and now I've been serving a larger group of churches in this role now for the last 18-plus uh, years and living in Richmond, Virginia. So I've lived a lot of neat places and experienced a lot of wonderful things about the world, and I feel like I have a very rich 
story that shaped my life with cultures and languages and opportunities that, uh, you know, to live and travel that a lot of people would probably really, really trade with me any day of the week they'd want to do that because it really was, really was a remarkable kind of upbringing that I experienced. How old were you when you moved to Florence? Yeah, I would have been six years old, a little older than six. And so I started, I actually went to first grade at a private American school in Florence called uh, St. Michael's Country Day School. Mm. And uh, it was a wonderful school. And I was there for my first and second grades. And then we moved to Rome, where I eventually, for fourth and fifth grades, wound up going to the Italian public school system. So, you know, my my plan had to be pretty good to do that. And I learned a lot uh, and still still am very fluent in Italian today. So what was that like, leaving the U.S. and moving to such a different culture as a six-year-old? What stands out to you? (laughs) You know, the one thing that stood out to me almost immediately when we got there, besides the language that I couldn't be understood, was the fact that uh, one of my favorite things as a kid, even as a six-year-old kid, was Dr. Pepper. I love Dr. Pepper. That's mm-hmm. my dream. If I could get a soda, I like Dr. Pepper. But there was no Dr. Pepper. There wasn't much in the way of various kinds of soda. There was, you know, an orange soda and a Coca-Cola, and, and that's about it. But mm-hmm. no Dr. Pepper. And I really remember thinking as a six-year-old, what am I going to do? There's no Dr. <laughs> Pepper. How am I going to survive? <laughs> it was the first disappointment that I had with culture. Oh. But many of those things that, you know, I wound up later having a whole other series of disappointments when, you know, came back to the USA and came back through Canada. And then many of the things that I'd grown to love in Italy were no longer present now Mm. on this side of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot to learn when you get inside of another culture. And the Italian culture is so wonderful. The people are so friendly and Mm. people have a real joy for life. And uh, so I have many, many extremely wonderful memories of my years lived in Italy. Yeah. Yeah. What was the difference in, do you remember a difference in the church culture as a young boy? Was that a lot different? Oh, yeah. Very different than anything we've experienced here or that I'd ever known, you know, here uh, stateside. Uh, You know, in Italy in particular, if you were born in Italy at the time that I lived there in the late 60s uh, and into the 70s, if you were born, you were a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. Whether you really ever went or not, you just it was just assumed. It was mm. just like we're a Roman Catholic country and if you're born here, that's what you are. And you know, you even just about everybody had their baby baptized in the mm. Catholic Church and you had your weddings in the Catholic Church and uh, you know, that was just what it was. And actually we were evangelical uh, Protestants. Christians uh, living in a culture where actually we really weren't all that welcome. Kind of an interesting little tidbit that I learned really even as a very young child is the word Protestant for us in English just kind of means, you know, Protestant is kind of like a label. Mm -hmm. But the Italian word for Protestant is literally the English word protester. So when you think about it, we were not so much referred to as evangelical Christians as we were referred to as protesters. Mm. So we were protesters in some way. We were understood to be protesters against the the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. Not that that was always our posture, but that's how people perceived us. Right. So actually there was some uh, discrimination against us uh, for that in various places, uh, kind of look strangely upon. But it was an interesting mix because uh, with regard to people, the culture was always very warm and open and friendly. And so we were kind of an oddity in the culture. Being, uh, what do you mean you're Christian, but you're not Roman Catholic? I mean, 
how does that work? We don't even understand how that relates. So that was really kind of an interesting learning experience. Uh, even when I went to Italian public schools, there was uh, they did prayer every day, and, and they would pray in certain ways that really wasn't very comfortable uh, in my faith. It was okay when we prayed the Lord's Prayer, but it was a little more challenging for me to pray the Hail Mary. So, and my parents kind of found a way to help me be exempted from that way of praying. But then I kind of got mm, picked on a little bit because they are not you know, really who we are. Yeah. <laughs> so it was an interesting uh, journey of learning how to kind of find my way there in that culture. But I, I had parents who really, really loved God, really, really loved the church. They were the real deal. Mm-hmm. And I took a lot of cues in my own life, just kind of watching them and how they responded with such love in every context. It was just uh, just amazing. And it really it really shaped me so much so that I found myself having a little joyful heart for all people. Mm. And it really it really helped me just learn to love the culture and love the people. And to this day, we still have strong friendships with people in Italy, even though I haven't lived there since the mid-70s. Wow. Well, Dr. Phil, as you were talking, um, it stuck out to me. Well, a few things stuck out to me, but you said you relate a lot to even now after you haven't lived there in so many years, but there's a lot of their culture, you know, because during your formative years, you grew up there from the time you were six until like 10th grade, you were in Italy and just uh, maybe kind of a two-part question. Any memories from your time there that stick out to you and also the, the part of the culture that you said you kind of became a part of you, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Well, let me answer that question first. Uh, two things jumped out to me about that. Number one, the city of Rome kind of, I don't know, the spirit of the city of Rome kind of infects you when you live there. And it's a joyful, joyous kind of infection, I would suppose. Um, you know, Rome has such a long and deep history in the human story, right? Mm-hmm. And the Roman Empire that was vast, there's still sort of a sense of pride uh, in the appropriate way of that great history and how sort of the Romans ruled the day at one point. And, you know, they carry with them almost like a badge of honor associated with that. There's a lot of negative that goes with that story. But if you're a Roman, if you're from Rome, then you're sort of proud of that history in a way. And Rome is one of the longest standing cities, you know, that we have in the world just about anywhere. And so it has a very, very long, rich and deep history. And history in Rome is so much different. You know, here in Virginia, we'll travel around and go see a home that's 200 years old and think about my what history is in that home. But, you know, I stood right at the Colosseum, which has a 2,000-year history. Well, Mm -hmm. that's a whole lot different, right? And so you see these things that have such rich and long stories associated with them that that captures you. So there's a couple more things about the culture that really stand out, I think. One is the relationship of the Italian people to food. And uh, I've characterize it this way often is that even the poorest of the poor will find a way to eat well. They may not have a nice home. They may not have a nice car. They may not have the best clothes. But sort of, bless God, we're going to eat well because you don't, I think sometimes in our culture here in North America, we sort of eat to live. But in Italy, you live to eat. And it's not that everybody was, you know, had a problem with eating or anything like that. They just, when they ate, they were going to eat well. And I've been to some restaurants from time to time here in Virginia and other places where it's like, hmm, that was not the best eating experience I've ever had in my life. <laughs> but I can't ever remember that being true in Italy anywhere, ever, at all, period. <laughs> if you're going to go eat, you're going to eat well. It was just going to happen. You're going to eat well. And then specifically in Rome, uh, you know how uh, here in the States we talk about people 
from Missouri being from what they call the show-me state. In other words, you kind of have to prove it to the Missourians, right? Well, the Roman culture is a little bit that way, too. You're not going to fool me. You're not going to pull that past me. And uh, I'm not going to let you trick me. And that's kind of a sub part of the Roman culture. I'm going to be smarter, wiser, slider than you are. And I find myself sometimes operating like that when I relate to people. You're not going to trick me. You know, I'm not going to let you trick me. I'm going to be one step ahead of you. And that doesn't always mix really well with what I think Jesus calls me to do. (laughs) So I have to be careful not to let the negative side of that way of thinking impact how I live with people. You know, Mm -hmm. I want to find ways to live in trust with folks and work together with them for good and not always be thinking, well, you're probably trying to trick me. I bet you are. That's not very nice to do that. But that is a very Roman way. Yeah. yeah. As you were talking, I was remembering back a few years ago, I was able to go there. And just the food and, like, I still remember that. It's an experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is an experience. It's an experience. I think of tablecloths and mm-hmm. um, just the streets opened up and tables outside. And, yeah. We do something here in our home periodically. I think I do it as much for my own mental sanity as I do for the joy that it brings me to watch people experience it. But we'll invite people to our home. We'll set up an extra table in our dining room. And I'll call, I'll say to them, come, we're going to have an Italian feast. Dinner will start. We kind of Americanize a little bit. We start at 6 o'clock. Usually in, in Europe, you don't even start eating dinner till about 7.30 or mm-hmm. 8 o'clock. But I will start at 6 o'clock to kind of, you know, manage the American mentality about it. But then dinner lasts for about three hours. Not because you're eating for three hours solid, but it is really more than about the food. It is about the food, but it's let's try a little bit of this, then I'll go fix the next. And in the meantime, we're talking, we're eating, we're sitting at the table, we're fellowshipping. We're, and the last one we had, dinner started at six and we were all getting up from the table at nine and everybody had had a great evening and they were all commenting on the sort of the nature of sitting around the table like that mm-hmm. and just really having this experience of, well, let's call it community. Mm-hmm. And it really is true that, so it's, it's really in some ways not about the eating. It really is about the community that you get to experience around the table. Mm-hmm. And uh, So I do that for my own mental sanity, right? Just from mm-hmm. time to time, let's have another one of those Italian feasts and let's get some friends around the table. For the There's things to learn from different cultures. And that is one of the things is that taking that time around the table and just extending that to where it's not, hey, we need to eat because it's time, you know, we're, it's time to eat so we can live. <laughs> but Yeah, um, right. Exactly. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think of it sometimes at Thanksgiving, you know, we will work long and hard to get a nice Thanksgiving meal on the table. And sometimes we can work all day long to get it ready. And then you sit down, somebody says the blessing, you dig into the turkey and the mashed potatoes and the dressing. And 25 minutes later, everybody's pushing away from the table, <laughs> even having had seconds, maybe. Mm-hmm. Right. That's and, right. Uh, so that experience of eating is very different than what I grew up with. And I was grateful for my parents who always, we always had an evening meal together. It was just part of our experience. And then the culture just sort of shaped us around that. Even church-related things were often shaped around that kind of fellowship. So mm-hmm. it's very, very rich. And I think those will long be part of, you know, who I am. Mm-hmm. I, I find myself teaching it to my granddaughter, you know, so Dr. Phil, as you were talking, I was thinking about the scripture verse that says, don't stop meeting together and uh, fellowshipping and breaking bread together. And I think that that's, you know, the fellowship is as important as the eating. And it sounds like to me, 
that's a huge part of the Italian culture is kind of the community aspect of the eating, not rushing through it, but taking your time and fellowshipping. And so it just made me think of that scripture verse. Talk about uh, how you got into ministry or when you answered uh, the call that God had on your life to go in ministry as a pastor. You mentioned you pastored in Ohio and Virginia uh, before becoming the district superintendent in Virginia. So if you just want to talk about how that journey in ministry, where that call began. Yeah, thanks for asking that question. You know, uh, I mentioned earlier how I had parents who really loved the church, and, and I was blessed because my parents had come to a place in their own life where they were really, really sold out to God. I would say they were completely surrendered to it. They had their own sense of calling, and when my dad was a pastor, and when my mom and dad were both serving as missionaries, they were just, they were all in for Jesus. They were all in for the work of the, of the church. They absolutely loved the church. I mean, I can to love the church because my mom and dad absolutely loved the church. They loved the people of God and they loved serving Him. And it just was very contagious in my spirit. And so they brought me up to love the church that way and always to contribute to it. So even as a young child, I would help in worship services. I would sing or read scripture or greet people or sometimes help collect an offering if one was received. Uh, I was always part of the services. I just, I was always contributing. So in that sense, I think we all have ministry callings upon our life. Um, when I was, oh, probably around 16 or 17, I began to wonder just exactly what God had in store for me. And at times, I, I had a great interest in geology. I had a great interest in weather and those kinds of things like climate and that kind of stuff. And I studied in some in those areas in my first years of college and in uh, late parts of high school. But it became sort of clear to me probably when I was around 16 or 17 that God was calling me to be involved in uh, the work of the church specifically. And I felt clear that I should um, start preparing for ministry. By the time I was 18, I was a student at Olivet Nazarene University of Chicago, and I had to declare a major. And I found myself just kind of naturally, I really hadn't thought about it, but I was there to study, and the next thing I know, I was there studying ministry, and it was very clear to me that God had called me. And I want to want to go back to something that happened when I was 17 that was really has really shaped me and formed me uh, for ministry for many, many years. I still remember it with great clarity to this day. In the little church that we were part of, which probably had about 100 people, about 40 of that 100 were high school kids. It was an amazing group, amazing little church, and I had the privilege of being part of that. And we had an amazing volunteer couple who just poured into all of us young people. And uh, the pastor there just loved young people, too. And he, he made it possible. We would have Sunday night church services, and he made it possible one Sunday night a month for the youth to lead the worship service. So our youth leaders and youth workers would sort of tag team different ones of us to do different things. And oh, I would sing or play guitar or be involved somewhere in the leadership of the service. And on kind of a rotating basis, different ones of us would even share a message in that service. And one time it, it came to be my time to technically preach the message to that Sunday night service. Now, remember, I had not had any training on how to be a preacher or even any public speaking, really, for that matter. So I started preparing and I really was not very prepared. And I had this message that I thought was going to take a really long time to share. And I got up and I got really nervous and I shared it. And to be quite honest, it was probably not a very good message. And it was over in three minutes, too. Like the whole message from start to finish was done in three minutes. And I remember there were parts of me that were thinking, I just failed at that. 
I did not do very good at that. But I came down off the platform stage area, and we were going out into the lobby, and there was one very precious lady who was very faithful, very quiet, but very faithful. Like, she was always in the church service. Whenever the doors were open, she was there. And she came up to me, made a point to come up to me. And I don't ever remember talking with her much before after I knew her, but I didn't really have conversations with her. And she said to me, she said, it's very obvious to me that God has a calling on your life. Thank you for the message. It was for me. Mm. And I remember thinking, was she in the same service where I just miserably failed? Because like that doesn't feel at all. But the Spirit of God really used her voice because I kept hearing the words she said to me. And I began to believe that maybe God did have a purpose for me. And that shaped me. And it really became like later I went before credentials boards and others to, you know, see if I had gifts for great and graces for ministry. But I remember that sweet, precious lady's voice. And, you know, in some ways she was, quote, just a regular attender, just a member of the church. But she wasn't just that. I mean, for me, in that day, she became the voice of God that really, that really has set a pattern. And, you know, sadly, in a way, I don't remember her name. And my guess is that by now she's probably in heaven. But there are times that I wish I could go back and figure out exactly who this precious lady was and to tell her what an impact she's had on me on all these years. And here's what I'd like to say. Many of us have opportunity to speak into the lives of others, right? Mm -hmm. And we seldom really fully understand impact. I bet that that night when she came up to me, when she knew she could speak something positive into my life, but she probably has no idea the depth to which her words became kind of the clarity in my life for God can use me. God can do something to me, even though at times I felt like a failure that maybe God had something for me. And, you know, now down through the years, God's used me to pastor three different churches and now serve as an overseer to more than a hundred. And I mean, I would have never thought it then that day, but God is good and he's faithful. So thank you for the opportunity to tell that part of my story and how much her influence and really our influence as a church today can be so meaningful to others. And let's keep on being that. I want to be like her. You know, I want to speak some life and some mission and some purpose into some others' lives, too. Yeah, it is um, a blessing to be able to look back and pinpoint those people that have impacted our lives in momentary ways. Mm-hmm. That was a passing conversation. Um, yeah. didn't spend the day with her. It was a passing conversation. No. Yeah. And I can look back in my life and see those same things. And we do have opportunities maybe daily um, or weekly, depending on, you know, how often we're out and engage with folks, to have that impact and to realize how different the world can be just by a few positive words um, spoken into someone's life. That's powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. So when did you meet your bride? Uh, I was a student at uh seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, I met her through some friends whom actually I had introduced them, and uh, they had gotten married uh, six or seven months before, and uh, my friend worked with uh, Cheryl. By that time, Cheryl was a nurse, and I was a student at the seminary, and we got acquainted one day at their home, and uh, we started a friendship, and then about a year later, uh, we were married, and we've been married a long time now, but, but God has been very faithful. And uh, we're really, really grateful. And it was neat to see how similarly her family, Cheryl's family and my family, how we had shared so many of the same values and our faith was shaped so similarly and how God brought us together. It's really a neat, neat story mm-hmm. to see this hand. Yeah. 
And you ministered, you ministered um, at Annadale? Was that where? I did. We pastored in Annadale, Virginia. I was a pastor at Calvary Church of the Nazarene for a little over four years. And prior to that, I pastored in two churches in Ohio, one in a, one in a very small town uh, called Payne, Ohio, probably about a population of a thousand. And uh, then I pastored in a suburb of Toledo, Ohio. The town's actual name is Oregon. Ohio. And uh, I was pastored in Oregon for nine years, a little over nine years, and I was pastored in pain for almost five years. Okay. So altogether, I had uh, right at almost 18, 19 years of pastoral ministry. So how would you say that, and now you're the district superintendent, you've been the district superintendent for how many years? Starting my 19th year 19th, right now. 19th yeah. year. So would you say that growing up, experiencing different cultures, has been tremendous, like you spoke to it earlier um, in our conversation, that that growing up in those, in experiencing different culture um, has served you well in your ministry role, even on our district. Yeah, you know, having had those exposures like I had to different culture made me, first of all, love differences of culture. Mm-hmm. And I love exploring that. I love living into those differences. I had been privileged here on the Virginia District Church of the Nazarene to witness uh, our district have greater diversity uh, in terms of cultures that are part of the district. We have a strong presence of Spanish language churches. And even within the Hispanic culture or the Latino culture, there's lots of different subcultures mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, people who are from one Central American country are not like people who are from another Central American country, who are not like people who are from other South American countries. And it's interesting to even see the differences of culture that obtain there. And uh, I was privileged as a pastor to help start a Spanish language congregation and to help start a Korean language congregation. And when you do that, you're just by the force of it, you're going to be involved in differences of culture. And I think God calls the body to be one. He calls us to a great degree of unity. And uh, when you bring some cultures together, sometimes it creates, uh, oh, I would call them joyful friction spots. Because we all have different cultures, have different understandings of time or different understandings of positions of authority or certain ways of greeting one another or expressing love and kindness. I'll never forget uh, one of the things I learned from the Korean pastor, who was my very good friend and taught me so much about Korean and sort of Asian and Eastern parts of the world culture. But even the giving of a gift in their culture, you always did it with two hands. You never would give a gift with just one hand. You would never hand somebody something with one hand because that would mean that your other hand was, like, what was your other hand up to? Mm-hmm. You know, were you hiding a sword that you were going to hit me with or something? That was kind of like a cultural understanding. So whenever you handed a gift, you always did it two-handed. And uh, I find myself, even to this day, when I present something to somebody, I try to use both hands, you mm-hmm. know, as a way of saying, here, I'm fully present. I'm right here for you, and I'm offering this to you. So I, I love that. I love that. And I, in Virginia, the world has come to Virginia. And so in my role as a church leader, I just believe, you know, we get the privilege of speaking into other people's cultures, and everybody loves hearing about the gospel in their own native language mm-hmm. and through, you know, as few barriers as possible. And sometimes cultures and cultural expressions can become barriers to hearing the gospel, and I don't think Jesus wants those to be in the way. So I, I have so, so many stories of that kind of thing that it's just, I'm always learning myself about that. I, 
I know that one thing. I've got a lot to learn about it, but I absolutely love that fact. And, and here in Virginia, we work hard at making it possible to celebrate what it means to be one district family, even though we have many various cultural expressions of the gospel. And it's hard work. You have to be intentional about it. Otherwise, the tendency is to drift away from each other. It's, it's just easier. Mm-hmm. But the gospel isn't necessarily just a call to easy. It's a call to the best. And I think God's call to unity is a great, great, powerful incentive to me. And to so many followers of Jesus Christ, they really do want to know what it means to love everybody. Well, Dr. Phil, uh, thank you for joining us today and for sharing your testimony and words of wisdom. It's been great to have you on Hope Talks today. Well, I thank you for the privilege. And I, I would just want to say this, that I'll never forget that day when, as a young boy of age nine, after hearing my mom and dad talk so wonderfully about God and the church and Christ and his love, that it dawned on me and I realized that Christ had died for me. And as a nine-year-old boy, I couldn't get over that fact. And I remember talking to my mom about it, and she was wise enough to help me pray a very simple sinner's prayer. And the very next day, I got a chance to talk to my dad because he had been away on a trip. And I told him, and it was a, it still is to this very day, a very clear marker in my life of receiving the joy of Jesus and best decision I've ever made. And I'm glad he's still working on me, and I'm, I'm grateful to be part of his family. Thank you, Dr. Phil. That's a, a great word, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Hope Talks. We pray that as you've heard Dr. Phil Fuller's testimony today, that it truly has been a half hour of hope for your life. May God bless. Hope Talks is sponsored by Church of the Nazarene Harrisonburg in partnership with Sunshine Ministries. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Hope Talks. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe for all the updates and latest episodes. Also, if you're in the Harrisonburg or Rockingham County area, we invite you to listen on the radio each Sunday at noon on 1470 AM or 102.1 FM WBTX.